0: Well, hey, uh, my name's Brian, it's good to see you. Uh, Welcome, if we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here and uh, it's great to be with you. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you afterwards, so come find me, I'm always hanging out up here afterwards and I'd love to uh, say hello if we haven't got an opportunity to meet yet. Do grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We are in week two of our fall practice series called Preaching the Gospel. Last week we tried to deal with two primary questions. Why preaching the gospel? and why a practice series. So uh, let, me, let me try to, uh, I'm not gonna recap why preaching the gospel because that was like literally the entire message last week. So you can go back and listen to that. I will encourage you to do that if you weren't here last week and uh, haven't caught up on the podcast or on YouTube. Let me encourage you to do that because uh, that message is really foundational to where we're going as we work our way through the rest of the series. So let me encourage you uh, to catch up on that. But let me answer briefly the question, why a practice series? Because uh, I think it's important for us to get our around that. There are practice guides out in the lobby, and what you'll find on those practice guides is they're not so much studying more information, but they're inviting us into practice, into a way of living. And um, the, the reason we think that's so important is because we believe that Jesus was serious when he said that we should follow him that we are actually called to be more like him. In fact, uh, what you'll hear us say a lot is that apprentices of Jesus, disciples, those of us who call ourselves his followers, we're called to do three things that are three actions that make up the definition of what a disciple is. We're called to be with Jesus, We're called to become like Jesus, and we're called to do the things that Jesus did. That's not original to us. That comes from practicing the way of ministry that we've spent a bunch of time with over the last uh, several years, Uh, but it's a, a great kind of concise way of looking at discipleship. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do the things that Jesus did. But here's the thing. I don't know about you, but in me, becoming like Jesus is a long process, and there's a lot of me and not a lot of Jesus a lot of times, Right? That change process is challenging, and um, that's why we need to step into being changed to be more like him. We have to have a way to understand change. And so uh, there's a process, if you've been around, you've seen it before, but there's a process of change that we talk about that says uh, that the things we have control over, uh, teaching and community and practice, those things flow into changing us under the power of the Holy Spirit as we place ourselves in position to be changed by him, shaped by him. And, And like most North American churches, we evaluated years ago and said, um, our, our teaching's not bad. That's pretty solid. I mean, sometimes it's better than others, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, the, the community's pretty great. Like, we have a, a lot of really great connection. But, but practice was woefully missing in fact what we did as we kind of evaluated our habits and rhythms is we said man our rhythms our habits look a whole lot like the world around us apart from coming to church on sunday morning um, we, we really need to address those practices and you've probably heard me say almost ad nauseum we won't have the life of jesus unless we take on the lifestyle of jesus hence practices we engage these practices not so that you would get more information but so that you would step into these practices. And so I say that so that I can say, don't just listen, but engage with your whole life. Um, If you are part of a community group, you're going to be walking through these practices. Uh, This week in the practice guide, there's a video that's being referenced that your community group leaders will have access to. And so if you're not in a community group and you want access to that video, the best thing to do is join a community group. See, there you go. Um, but if you're not ready for that, for whatever reason, um, you can, on our website where you stream our sermon, you will see the link uh, there that you can, you can access. You can also uh, call or email into the church office, and we can send that link out to you. So last week, we talked about what the gospel is. This week, I want to do a little compare and contrast to talk about what the gospel isn't, in some ways that are uh, very common to the way that we hear the gospel spoken about in North America. I'm going to really lean into practicing the way for a lot of stuff uh, this week. It's a core part of what, what we're doing here. Um, and I, I want to just warn you up front that um, I believe in the next half hour I will probably offend almost all of you. So just be ready. I'm warning you ahead of time, and please have grace. I'm wrestling through this. You're wrestling through this. We're all going to wrestle through it together. Be charitable towards me. I will be charitable towards you as well, and I'll offend you along the way. So here we go, all right? Um, Here's what I'm hoping to do today. Um, What I want to do is, uh, as we use this compare and contrast model, What what I'm hoping to do is be as charitable as I can be to each of these positions, and I want to walk you through um, what they are, what's good about them, what's not good about them, or where they fall short of the gospel, and what it looks like for us to engage the totality of the gospel, both in our lives and in the way that we speak the gospel to others. The ways that I'm going to lay out, I don't believe are sufficient but I want you to hear me say, there's lots of parts of them that are good. They're just not sufficient. They're not the, the, the full totality of the gospel. My goal is not critique, but expansion. My goal is not to say, we've figured this out, we got it right. No, absolutely not. But it is to say, if the gospel that we're preaching is not the gospel that Jesus preached, we should probably at least evaluate that. We should probably... Um, recognize that we need to start with the gospel Jesus preached if we're going to end up with Jesus' gospel, right? That, that makes sense. And so I'm going to use this compare and contrast model. Jesus himself did that in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you, you probably remember he, uh, one of the elements of, uh, of teaching that he used was you have heard it said, but I say to you, And so there's going to be a little bit of that compare and contrast. Um, I I wouldn't put myself in Jesus category, so I'm going to uh, fast forward a couple thousand years to Dallas Willard. You know, of course I would fast forward to Dallas Willard, uh, who also does some compare and contrast. If you read Willard's writings, he does a lot of work comparing what he calls the gospel of sin management to the gospel of the kingdom. And uh, that's what we're going to kind of wrestle with today. Willard uh, makes this statement uh, in the Spirit of the Disciplines. Uh, Yeah, Spirit of the Disciplines. Uh, He says this, "We, we must do nothing less than engage in a radical rethinking of the Christian concept of salvation. Now, I want to be clear, Willard's not talking about moving outside of the orthodox understanding of salvation. What he's saying is, our understanding of the gospel comes from how we understand salvation, and so we really need to think, are we asking the same questions, are we meaning the same thing when we use the word salvation that Jesus and those who are walking with him used? For instance, when we're talking about salvation, we need to know what are we saved from. We need to know what are we saved to. We need to know is salvation primarily about going to heaven when we die? Is salvation primarily about forgiveness of sins? Or is there something else that's going on in that conversation? There's a lot of good things that are being called the gospel that are good things. They're right things that should be spoken, they're just not the gospel. N.T. Wright makes this statement, and I would uh, affirm and agree with the way that he said it. I am perfectly comfortable with what people normally mean when they say, quote, the gospel. I just don't think it's what Paul means. In other words, I'm not denying that the usual meanings are things that people ought to say, to preach about, and to believe. I just wouldn't use the word gospel to denote those things. So what I'm saying is, there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to say that's true, that I'm going to say is not the gospel, And that's important for us to get, because if we're called to preach the gospel, we want to preach the gospel that actually is the gospel. And so to do that, I'm going to ask you to listen to a story that you have probably heard a lot of times from Matthew chapter 19. We tend to look at that story from one angle, and I'm going to ask you to look at it from a different angle this morning. So Josiah is going to come, and he's going to read for us uh, Matthew 19, starting in verse 16, reading through the end of the chapter. And I want you to listen to the question that Jesus gets asked about salvation and the way that he answers the salvation question.
1: And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, All these I have kept. What still do I lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first.
0: Thanks, Josiah. So this starts with a question, the dream question, really, for any of us who are followers of Jesus and interacting with those who are seeking to follow Jesus. This young man comes to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? That word thing or deed, depending on your translation, uh, is actually not in the original. It's literally what good must I do to uh, inherit the kingdom of heaven or to have eternal life? Um, and if you were out front mowing the lawn or weeding the flower bed or whatever, and your neighbor came up to you and asked that question, like, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get teed up any more than that. Like, if you had these conversations, never really had a serious, like, intentional conversation, you're out weeding the flower bed, your neighbor walks over and says, hey, I just had a question for you. What good must I do to inherit eternal life? You'd be like, whoa. (laughs) Like, that... That's pretty amazing, right? I'm ready to go. So, so you would be ready to answer that question. But here's the thing. Jesus does it wrong. Did you notice that? Like he totally messes up the opportunity. What good thing should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, he gets into this dialogue about good. But then, then he says, you should follow all the commandments. Excuse me? And then the guy says, well, I already did all that. What else should I do? He said, oh, yeah, there is more actually. Um, So go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the man walks away sad. Do you ever think Jesus is messing with your theology? Like, if you were around church, especially evangelical churches in the late 20th century, you know the way Jesus is supposed to answer the question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Do You don't have to do anything. Doing is is, is religion. We're not about religion. Instead, it's all been done for you. Just be in relationship with me. That's what Jesus is supposed to say. Don't you hate it when Jesus messes up your theology? Like, what's he talking about? What's he doing? There's this wrestling that I have, at least, as I read this and say, like, what's Jesus talking about? Now, uh, one of the things that you need to note about this passage is that there are a bunch of words that Jesus is going to use interchangeably, and that's a real key to understanding what's going on here. So um, this man says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if you jump down to verse 23 and 24, Jesus is going to use the term kingdom of heaven as a synonym for eternal life, and then the disciples are going to use the term be saved, and Jesus is not going to correct them as a synonym for eternal life. Jesus is actually going to take eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, and being saved, and conflate them all together into one one idea. Because when Jesus is talking about eternal life, he's talking about a life that is now, and a life that is then. He's talking about us entering into a a life that is in the present, the kingdom of God is at hand, and will be, ultimately, the kingdom is both already and not yet, as we talked about last week. So Jesus is using these terms, eternal life, kingdom of God, being saved, all uh, all as synonyms. And so what I want us to do is I want us to walk through the way that our Gospels, the Gospels that we often hear, um, uh, how they relate to that. And I'm going to answer for you a couple key questions as we walk through. I'm going to give you a, a popular level definition of that, that specific Gospel. I'm going to tell you what's, um, w- where it fits within the larger story. We've talked about story over the last couple of weeks, the four-act story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So we're going to talk about how it fits within that, that overall narrative. We're going to look at what's good about the gospel. We're going to look at why that specific gospel falls short and is insufficient, and what our response should be. So that, that's where we're headed. I'm, I typically would say, here are the three things that we're going to walk through. You're used to that. You hear that every single week. I'm not doing that this time because, um, I, like I said, my goal is to offend all of you in the next half hour, and I don't want you to get offended ahead of time because you'll walk out before I actually offend you, and that's probably not best. probably better for me to offend you as we go. Hopefully not. I'm going to try my best not to do that. Uh, And please hear me say, there are good things in all of these Gospels. They're simply not sufficient. So let's start with what I'm simply calling the cheap Gospel. I'm using that term cheap Gospel uh, coming off of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's use of the term cheap grace. But it can be talked about a bunch of different ways. John MacArthur uses the term easy believism. Uh, John Ortberg uses the term minimum entrance requirement gospel. Uh, The idea here is, as it's uh, stated, popular level summary, you're a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you'll go to heaven when you die. If you want a picture, you probably remember there's like a cliff on one side, a cliff on the other side, and the cross is in the middle moving you from uh, death into life as a kind of a simple illustration. Now there's lots of good things here about the easy believism gospels. If you look at the story that we looked at, the four act story of creation, fall, restoration, redemption, and restoration, the easy believism gospel zeroes in on the middle. So there's not a whole lot of creation talk, not a whole lot of restoration talk, but the fall, sinfulness, and the redemptive work of Jesus is there present. So it kind of clips the ends, but it emphasizes the middle. What's good about it? Well. The easy gospel, the the cheap gospel, uh, it emphasizes personal response. Now, if you grew up in a church like this, that may not be a big deal to you. But if you grew up in a mainline church like I did, or if you grew up in a Catholic church, the idea of being uh, called to personally respond to the gospel is actually a significant thing. And so that's, that's really good about this gospel. We, are, uh, we each individually do need to respond to Jesus' call. We don't get to just uh, be absorbed into the crowd. We each as individuals need to hear the call of Jesus and respond. So that's a good thing about this gospel. But there's some bad stuff. Um, the, the biggest problem with it, and you're going to hear me say this a lot this morning, this is nowhere close to what Jesus called the gospel. In fact, uh, if you read not just Jesus himself, but the entire New Testament, you're not going to find anything like this in the, in the New Testament. How many of you know Babylon B? Are you familiar with that? If you're not familiar with it, I would not recommend it. You're cynical enough on your own. You do not need help. But... Um, There are some good things here and there. Um, So a couple years ago, there was a Babylon Bee headline. It's a a satirical website that uh, kind of pokes fun at the church and Christians. Like I said, you're cynical enough. Um, There was a headline that said this, Bible-lacking sinner's prayer returned for a full refund. And then uh, the article, it's kind of made up afterwards. You know, there's, there's a guy, a fictional man, who is quoted as saying this. I searched that Bible through and through, and I couldn't find anything about a magic prayer that I could lead people to say in order to instantly get them into the kingdom and have them be forever more secure in their eternal salvation, no matter what their life looked like afterwards. So you return the Bible. Now, uh, that, that's satirical, but it points to a reality that the cheap gospel doesn't show up anywhere in the scriptures. The, The problem with the concept is not that any of those individual pieces are wrong, it's just that that's not the gospel that Jesus preached. And so therefore, if that wasn't Jesus' view of salvation, it likely was not his view of the gospel either. Ortberg, in his book, Eternity is Now in Session, uh, says this. The problem is that they're defining salvation as having their entrance application to heaven accepted rather than receiving life from Jesus from one moment to the next. And that idea of life is really key in the way the New Testament talks about salvation. What is salvation? Well, the New Testament talks about life as evidence of salvation. Jesus in John 10 says that um, he's come that we would have abundant life. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, one of the kind of hallmark texts on uh, the the doctrine of salvation says that you have been made alive in Christ. John in 1 John 5, 12, uh, if you were, uh, uh, it's probably one of those verses that you maybe have memorized or that has been part of your early journey. John says this, whoever has the son has life. Pretty straightforward life is a kind of the the shorthand for the result of salvation let let me say it this way the gospel is less concerned about getting you into heaven and more concerned about getting heaven into you that's the challenge with the cheap gospel it's all about i can just go get into heaven That's not what the gospel is concerned about actually ortberg in uh in his book uses the idea the gospel is not about relocation it's about transformation it's not about not about changing my geography right it's about changing me from from the inside out use this illustration Uh, pastor ace and i were traveling last week some of you know that Uh, we were out on the uh, west coast for a conference and because We were on East Coast time. We had to get there early in order to be able to make the first day of the conference. And so uh, we had to stay in a hotel right by the airport. And so as we walk into the hotel, Asa did not know that he was traveling with a celebrity. But let me tell you, we walked in and we we went to the desk and they said, Mr. Cannell, you are a Platinum Elite member. And so therefore, we have upgraded your room. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, we got like a big palatial room that had two bathrooms in it. Like, th- that was the best, It's amazing. Now, they, they didn't know that I'm a Platinum Elite member because I used points for all of those rooms and they were all free, but whatever, it doesn't even matter. I, 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 I got the upgrade, right? So we got this great room. Now, if I had gone to the desk attendant and I had said, ma'am, could you just explain to me what I need to do next year in order to be a Platinum Elite member again, because I kind of like this upgrade thing? That would be a perfectly appropriate question. Like, of course, there's a way that you do it. You go through, you have a certain number of nights or whatever, and then you get that status. Now, imagine almost 26 years ago, right before our wedding, Amanda and I are having the night before this conversation, and I say to her, you know, honey, I really want to stay married. I want to maintain our marriage status. Can you tell me what the minimum that I need to do is? in order to stay married to you. If you don't know Amanda well, let me just tell you, the next day would have looked a lot different than it actually <laughs> did, right? Because there's a distinct difference between a, a a a status at a hotel chain and a covenant relationship. That's the problem with the cheap gospel. It it mistakes the two. That if I just do a certain thing and pray a certain way and act in a certain, if I, if I just do a, a certain series of steps, I achieve status, go to heaven, I don't have, actually have to change the way that I live. Ortberg again uh, says it this way, if we view salvation wrongly as making the cut, we end up inadvertently violating the Great Commission. Jesus told us to make disciples, but if we essentially reduce salvation to getting into heaven, we are proclaiming a salvation that is disconnected from actually becoming disciples of Jesus. And the tragic result is millions of people who live needlessly untouched by the presence of God. See, the challenge with the cheap gospel is that if I am not living the abundant life in Christ, what I'm proclaiming to others is also not the abundant life in Christ, and what they're entering into is far less than relationship with Jesus. So the bottom line is, the cheap gospel does indeed have true parts, but the whole is woefully insufficient for... um, for transformation, because the gospel is not just about getting into heaven. All right, so that only offended a few of you probably, but now we're gonna step forward. The next gospel I wanna look at is what I'm calling the hyper-reformed gospel. This is going to hit a lot of you in offense, so let me try to work my way through it. I'm using the, the, the term hyper on purpose because there's lots of good things within reformed theology, lots of good things within reformed churches, things that are really uh, good to learn from and engage. I'm a fan. There's lots of stuff that I engage that's reformed thinking. But on the edges, there's a gospel that can sound something like this. God is a perfect, holy, and just God full of both love and wrath. You are guilty before him. God's demands must be kept and you can't do anything to keep them, but Jesus did all of the work for you on the cross. And a good reformed person adds hallelujah at the back end of that. And, 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 and hear me say, lots of good stuff here. The reformed gospel, the hyper-reformed gospel, very different than the cheap gospel, is theologically robust. There's depth to it. Um, The problem is there's narrow depth primarily around a few doctrines, but primarily around the doctrine of justification. Justification is kind of the hinge point of the hyper-reformed gospel. And the challenge with that is that Um, That justification, while a a, a Christian doctrine, not a Reformed doctrine, is not central to the gospel that Jesus taught. Now, it's a part, and it's a part of the gospel, but where the hyper-reformed movement gets it wrong is it makes a part of the gospel the whole of the gospel. So I'm going to quote Dr. Al Mohler, who's way smarter than me, and if he was here arguing with me, I'd probably lose. But um, he's not here arguing with me. And instead, I'm going to quote him from uh, the Together for the Gospel conference in 2019. He said this, Justification by faith alone is not merely a way of describing the gospel. It is the gospel. Now let me throw out a couple problems with that. Jesus talked about justification exactly one time. It was a very sweet story where he talked about someone being justified in a beautiful way one time. Paul talked about justification quite a bit more, but he only really unpacked it in his letter to the Galatians and then in a beautiful way in his letter to the Romans. He mentions it in Philippians, mentions it in 1 Corinthians, and it's not in the rest of his letters, not in any of Peter's letters, not in any of John's letters. That doesn't mean it's unimportant, but that's strange if it quote, is the gospel, right? If, if it's the centerpiece of the gospel, certainly Jesus would talk about it more, and even if Jesus maybe didn't have a full understanding of it and was relying on the New Testament writers to unpack it, certainly the apostles, those who walked with him, Peter and John, would unpack the, the theory of justification in a, a much more intentional way. Where does the hyper-reformed gospel fit in the story? Let's start there. So um, you see these four parts of the story? There's also a significant focus on fall and redemption here. But the uh, Reformed Gospel, because it's theologically more robust, will deal a bit more with creation and restoration. But on its edges, on the kind of the hyper-Reformed side, uh, there's very little to do with being made in the image of God and the goodness that's inherent within our creation that's typically pushed over to the side. And there's very little about the ongoing life in Christ apart from the restoration that will ultimately be one day. That uh, intentional uh, move into the restoration process also often gets missed along the way. But there are some great strengths to the Reformed Gospel, one of them is the reformed gospel focuses on the cross. Brings us back constantly to the cross just as the apostle Paul did. The reformed gospel also acknowledges sin and actually deals with it, which is a vital part of the gospel. We are broken people and our sin does indeed need to be dealt with. The other thing that I think is really good about the reformed gospel is it talks about the wrath of God. And as uncomfortable as the wrath of God makes us, it is all over the scriptures. Now, it's all over the scriptures as an expression of the love of God, which depending on your Reformed stream, you may or may not hear, because the wrath of God is like a parent's wrath when offended and broken that still deeply loves and longs for that child. In the same way, the wrath of God towards us is intended for love to draw us back to him. There are some problems with the Reformed gospel. One of the biggest problems is that it's nowhere close to what Jesus taught. Jesus didn't teach anything that sounds anything like this, nor did the rest of the New Testament writers. Maybe the bigger issue is that there is a bifurcating of faith and works within the the hyper-reformed gospel. Jesus didn't seem to have any problem with good works. He thought they were good. Like, he, he really emphasized good works. Like Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, people will see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. So, so he actually seems to be for us doing good works, and he doesn't separate that from our faith. When Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, there's this weird ending to the sermon. If you've uh, ever read through it, it's just like, if I ended sermons like that, they'd run me out of here pretty quickly. Uh, Jesus had taught all this stuff, and then he says, if you do what I say... You're going to be like a man who builds his house on the rock. storms come and the wind blows, but the house still stands. But if you don't do what I say, you're going to build your house on the sand. Storms come, the wind's going to blow, and the house is going to come down with a large crash. And he literally, mic drop, walks away. Like, that's it. That's the end of the sermon. They had to be like, weird, dude. That was a weird way to end that. But just imagine, can you imagine, I can't quite imagine, Jesus saying, if you don't Do put into practice what I said. You're going to be like a man who builds his house on the sand. Storms come, wind blow, house falls down. Boom. And then turns back around and says, oh, but by the way, you don't actually have to do anything that I said because I've done it on your behalf and it'll all be okay. It's going to be fine. Like, of course Jesus didn't say that. And Jesus never taught that. Jesus taught that we should follow him. And one of the challenges with the Reformed gospel is that um, following Jesus is an act. It's a work. We have to do the following of Jesus. One of the things you've probably heard me quote a lot from Willard is that grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And on the edges, the reformed gospel can push against effort because it's kind of run together with earning. But Jesus calls us to make effort, to do work. And that in no way gets in the way of the grace that we freely receive from God. The Reformed Gospel, hear me say, is not wrong. It is just insufficient. There's a high view of Christ, which is really, really good. But there's a low view of apprenticeship to Christ. And that's the challenge what we need to enter into is both a high view of Christ that we hold on to and a high view of apprenticeship to Christ. And when we think about those two, just those first two that we've talked about, um, there's, there's this movement over the last several decades in the church where there's a critique of you all, us, as consumer Christians. Maybe you've heard that term. A critique that the church is just full of consumers. Well, if you think about the cheap gospel and the hyper-reformed gospel, and if you hear those gospels over and over again, is it any surprise that the church is a consumer, made up of consumers? Because what we've said is you simply need to receive. That's all you need to do. And you're done, which is a consumer mentality. And so it could be that the consumer nature of the church is not a bug in the system, but actually the system itself, a result of the gospels that we're preaching. When we speak the gospel, preach the gospel to the world, we should invite people into a new way of life here and now, not just in eternity. All right, so I hit the first two. For those of you who are not yet offended, we're gonna hit the last one. This is uh, the prosperity gospel. Um, I'm going to use that great source of all information, Wikipedia, to define the, uh, the prosperity gospel. They actually do a pretty good job of defining it, so we're going we're to start with their stuff. Um, Wikipedia says this, a religious, uh, The prosperity gospel is a religious belief among some charismatic Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them, and that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. Now, let me say, almost no one who uh, engages and teaches the prosperity gospel would ever say that sentence. So, so n- nobody says, this is what we believe, but it's underneath lots of stuff. For instance, there are little catchphrases that you might hear. Things like, the best is yet to come, or um, your miracle's on the way. Those are some of those kind of catchphrases that point back to this idea that that, that God's going to step in and do this thing, and he's going to bring you blessing, and it's going to be this kind of overflow of all of the good things that uh, you could possibly receive. Now, um, I'm going to try to summarize a bit for you. Kate Bowler is a, a, a professor at Duke, and she's literally the world's leading expert on the prosperity gospel. She, if you want to dive in, she has a pretty uh, popular level book called Blessed, which uh, kind of walks through some of the details of the prosperity gospel. But she says this, prosperity gospel churches or prosperity theology has four primary components that are always present. Faith, health, wealth, and victory. Those four things are always present within prosperity theology. And there are two distinct versions that we can get tripped up by, so uh, one she calls hard prosperity, and there 's almost none of these churches left. Uh, hard prosperity, I, I would argue is literally heretical, and it was uh, it was basically that kind of uh, declaration of the gospel that said, "Send in money, and God sooner or later will give you a lot more money. This was like the 80s televangelists uh, Jimmy and uh, Tammy Faye Baker, some of you know those names. If you don't, bless you, but if you did, uh, as this was all kind of uh, exposed, a lot of these hard prosperity churches moved out, and they were replaced with what she calls soft prosperity churches. And where the hard prosperity churches were actually heretical, the soft prosperity churches, I would say, don't really teach heresy, because honestly, they don't teach much as it relates to theology, There's not a ton of theological depth. There's a lot of therapeutic, self-help kind of language. There's a lot of like, um, you're going to be great, and it's just uh, the the good life is right around the corner, and you follow these three steps, and you're going to get it. But there's very little that grounds that teaching in the gospel. In fact, if you look at the story... Uh, the, the story of God that we've talked about, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, the prosperity gospel tends to, if at all, touch just briefly on the first three and run to restoration. Everything is all about the kingdom that is already, without an emphasis on the not yet, because it'll be already if you just have enough faith. It's going to be good. Just keep pressing into it. Just keep, keep pressing into your faith Now, there are some good things about the prosperity gospel. Um, Let me give you a couple. One, the, the love of God is very clearly present in a gospel that says God wants what's best for you. He actually does. He actually loves you deeply and does want what's best for you. There's also the reality that God can change your situation in an instant. The power of God and the miraculous nature of God is emphasized in the prosperity gospel. There are also the fact, just very tangibly, that the prosperity gospel churches tend to be on the front lines of things like uh, inner city restoration and uh, social work. And they also, way earlier than the rest of us, were full of multi-ethnic people. The multi-ethnic church has really been driven forward by the prosperity gospel churches. And so there are some good things that are there, but there are some pretty major weaknesses. Um, the first one, again, is this concept would be totally foreign to Jesus and the New Testament disciples, not just because they didn't teach it, but because they didn't live it. The the life of the early church was anything but prosperous. And that's the major challenge, is how do you explain what's actually happening on the pages of Scripture and what's actually happening in uh, many, many places around the world right now? The first two Gospels had a problem with not calling people to follow Jesus. This one calls people to follow Jesus the wrong direction, a a, a direction that Jesus isn't walking. And so the challenge that we run into is the challenge that we actually see back in Matthew chapter 19. So Peter comes to Jesus and says, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus says, You're all going to get a throne, and you're all going to get a mansion, and you're all going to get blessing, and if you left stuff, you're going to get that stuff plus more stuff in the life to come. And so Jesus said, yes, there is blessing. The best indeed is yet to come. If by best, you mean that you become a person that's full of self-giving love that is uh, full of abundant peace and joy. And if by yet to come, you mean when you are in eternity with me, then indeed, the best is yet to come. But the prosperity gospel is a, um, a, 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 an up and to the right kind of idea, right? That, that everything is just getting better all the time. And um, that kind of upward mobility gospel is dramatically different than what Henry Nouwen described of Jesus as the gospel of downward mobility, right? Jesus is, is moving down ultimately into suffering and death, and he's inviting us to do the same thing. The problem with the prosperity gospel is it, it is terribly disappointing when God doesn't do what you think he promised to do. One of the things that you've heard me say a lot is one of the fastest ways to walk away from faith is to hold God to a promise he never made. God did promise you some stuff, some really good stuff. He promised that he would always be with you. He also promised, by the way, that you would have suffering. It was very, very clear. In this world, you will have trouble. All of you and will. Not, may, not might, a few of you. All of you will have trouble. But he promised another thing. Take heart. I have overcome the world. And so there's hope. It's just not the hope that the prosperity gospel lays out for us. It's a a half-truth, but not a whole truth. God does love you and wants what's best for you. It's just that his definition of best and your definition of best may be different at any given time. God actually is full of power and can do anything he wants at any moment. And often... That's leading us through suffering and difficulty because he actually has purposes for those things. Allowing brokenness in our lives so that we would be refined into the image of Christ, so that the, the hope of Christ would be fully formed up in us. The problem, bottom line, is that God is not a formula that we can play out and get an expected outcome. He's different than that. He's God we're not. And so therefore, we have to step into the mystery of who he is. All three of these gospels miss the kingdom. And that's the big challenge that I want to leave with you. Jesus invited us into the kingdom. If I was going to summarize what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1 that we looked at last week, it was that the, the story of Israel over the last centuries has found its culmination in him. You know, it's interesting, these Gospels largely don't need the Old Testament. Scott McKnight in his book, The King Jesus Gospel, said the reason why most of us don't know anything about the Old Testament is because our Gospel doesn't call for it. It's not grounded in the story of Israel, but Jesus' Gospel was. The story of Israel that's unfolded over centuries has found its culmination in Christ, and now because of Jesus, you and I are invited into the rule and reign of God. We can live now in a way that reflects King Jesus and the work that God's doing right now in the moment. And the entry into that is available to all of us. We just have to change our mind, change the way we see the world, and enter in, believe, repent, and believe is the way that Jesus said it. If we don't understand the gospel that Jesus declared we will find ourselves instead declaring other Gospels. And I'll, I'll be totally upfront with you. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody after the 8.30. I, I've used all three of these Gospels at various times, depending on where I'm at in the moment. Um, not so much to teach others, although probably some of that too, but just to like, manage my own life. I, I, it's very easy to find yourself, to find myself believing these things but they're not the gospel. And so we need to come back to the reality of what the gospel actually is, and what it means for us to live that way. I'm gonna invite the team to come. I know this was a lot of teaching and a lot of information. And I just wanna ask you a, a, a final question to think about as we, as we go from here. And then after this, we're gonna start to step into the way that all of this kind of works out practically um, as we preach the gospel in the world around us. At the top of the first four books of the New Testament, you're going to see a phrase. We'll call those books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you look at the title, in most of your Bibles, it will say something else. It will say, The Gospel According to Matthew. The Gospel According to Mark, or Luke, or John. And and I think as we step into the idea of preaching the gospel, a fair, right question we should be asking is, what's the gospel sound like according to me? Not like I'm writing scripture, And not like I'm uh, stepping in and creating something, but do I have an understanding of the gospel? Does the gospel, according to Brian, sound like Jesus' gospel? Or does it sound like something else? Is that the story that you're living in? Is that the story that you're inviting others into?